0: Good morning, everybody. So throughout the history of this church, we have done headset mics here and there until they break and they become distracting. Got a new one, so it's exciting. I feel so free. Um, Anyway, hey, welcome to Vineyard if you're new. My name is Marshall. I'm one of the leaders here. And um, man, Kevin, I thought you were new, but it's really just like a new you. You shave the beard off. It's fantastic. this morning, we are going to continue in a series that we've been in for the past few weeks uh, all about sin. We're spending the season of Lent, which is seven weeks, it's 40 days, uh, between sort of Ash Wednesday uh, leading up to Easter, where it's a time where we reflect as, as sort of the larger body of Christ across the world. We spend 40 days sort of in reflection about Jesus' sufferings, as well as sort of in, in our uh, a time of repentance for sin we felt like it was gonna be a really valuable thing for us to focus together on what is sin. How many of you guys have found this series like helpful in any way? All right, awesome. How many of you guys are feeling beat up every single week? Anyone? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) sorry, not sorry. Um, Now, the big idea for this series is that Sin, the the big idea is that sin is simply put the vandalism of shalom, that God created the world in such a way that there is beauty and order and worship and celebration together where humanity and God were connected. But it's because of our sin that that shalom, that order, that beauty was broken and fractured. Um, And I, I love how... Dr. Cornelius Plantinga defines shalom. He says that it is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights shalom in other words is the way things ought to be now all of us ache for this experience for some kind of reflection of this idea of shalom that he is talking about we all have an inner longing for it for for the good life to be restored to us to to sort of have moments where we can taste it for ourselves and sometimes we actually get that taste sometimes we experience some of the beauty and shalom that god created us not this weekend but last weekend uh, we had my family had this amazingly simple saturday morning we got up and Somehow, miraculously, all of our kids seemed to be on board with participating. We read some psalms, and we prayed together. We made French toast, and it was delicious. Then it was this beautiful sunny morning, so we went outside uh, after we put our our baby for a nap, and we, we all got in the hot tub as a family, and we just kind of played and splashed around, and the sun was out. It was beautiful, so we got out of the hot tub, and the kids just wanted to run around the grass as if it was springtime. In my household, running around the gra- in the grass, playing tag means that you do it naked, knock it till you try it. So our kids were running around naked uh, playing, and it was one of those perfect mornings. It was like, this is what the Sabbath is supposed to be. But with a family that has a a handful of spirited kids, how long does it take, do you think, before the shalom is broken, (laughs) right? And in the blink of an eye, the the shalom in the family is shattered by the smallest of offenses. Literally, I think it was, you ran the wrong direction, how dare you, to me, you know? And, And then it spirals out of control, and before we know it, we have World War III on our hands. There is incredible beauty in the world that we live in. There is so much goodness that God has given us to be celebrated. Our lives are sprinkled throughout with the shalom that God intends us to live in. And yet every day we are confronted with the reality that things are not how they ought to be. Over the last few weeks, we've been feeling this so acutely. I mean, really, the last few years. But lately, it's the images of this horrific war that is happening in Ukraine as civilians are now being targeted, and this was that theater that was blasted in, in Mariupol, I can't re- ever say it right. But here's the thing. Like, it's not just a, a thing that is happening on the other side of the world. This all touches us in our community, right? Uh, I have friends who are missionaries who live in Ukraine who have been... Uh, rushing in and out of the country, trying to get all of their people to safety. My next door neighbor, Stan, his family is all in Ukraine. In fact, I, I think the three of the households on my little street are all families from Ukraine. This is something that touches us deeply. And then you have other places, though the news isn't covering it very much anymore. There is an ongoing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan as people are suffering a horrific rule of the Taliban. We're seeing starvation. of women and of Christians that are there. We're now two years, two full years into a global pandemic, which was bad enough without all of the extra culture wars dividing us in the process. And then sprinkle on top of that racial injustices, mass shootings, gang violence, and ongoing executions in our nation. There is more than enough evil and horror to go around. Things are not as they are supposed to be. And if we take a moment to pause and look inward, we see that the evil that is prevalent and evident out there is also active within each and every one of us. The devastation all around us is also within us. And so as squeamish as we might be about looking at some of the gruesome effects of war and sin out in the world, we tend to be way more squeamish when it comes to looking inward at what's actually on the inside of us. Now in our culture, we don't like to talk about sin, at least not personal sin. We'll talk about societal sin all day, every day, historic injustices all, yeah, we can talk about that, but personal sin, oh no, 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 that's fine, you do you. Even in the church, we have become increasingly more and more uncomfortable using the word sin. Instead, we refer to what's gone wrong inside of us as, you know, a mistake or a slip up, a disease or a disorder. We don't think of sin as having done something evil as much as we may have just done something stupid. And here's the thing, that's not wrong. This is like the thesis statement for today's sermon. Sin is morally wrong and sin is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Big ideas here in Vancouver this in week. Now, have you ever noticed how often we refer to some great atrocity as senseless? Like, we struggle to find the right words to explain how something so wrong can happen. Sin is senseless. And nowhere is this more on display than in the lives of children. Now, to spare my children from always being the example of sinners, because they're one, one from my own life. When I, I remember when I was five years old, it was one of my earlier memories, and I was obsessed with Teenage Mutant, even though I wasn't allowed to watch it because freaking Dr. James Dobson destroyed my childhood. <laughs> and one morning, I was in the living room with my baby brother, oh, we're, we're, we're done-zo? Yeah. <laughs> Apologize to the people. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was good while it lasted. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I remember one morning I was in the living room with my baby brother, Jesse, who was just barely able to stand up by himself at that point. (laughs) Carl, welcome back. Give it up for Carl. Yes. So glad you're here, my friend. All right, let's start over. Freaking Dr. James Dobson destroyed my childhood. And so one morning I was in the living room with my then baby brother Jesse, who was just old enough to stand up on his own and I had this brilliant idea. I was going to do a running jump kick over his head just like Leonardo. Do I need to finish the story? Um, and so, you know, I, I got ready. I, I got a good long running start. I jumped with all my might, sure enough to kick him straight in the face, and he fell over, right? And here's the thing, like, that happens, kids do that, right? And so my mom, she pulls me aside, and she says, why did you do that? And I looked at her like, I'm just as surprised as you are, I don't know. And to this day, I'm still like waking up at three in the morning like, why did I do that? Now, hopefully Jesse has forgiven me by now, I don't know. But this is the big idea this morning. Today we are talking about the foolishness and of sin as well as the deep tragedy of addiction. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to get there in a little bit. Um now, you may, be, you may have heard that story about me kicking my brother in the face and think, Marshall, that isn't exactly a story of like some great sin. That was just a dumb thing that you did. And that is true, because not all sin, or not, not everything that we do that is foolish is automatically sin. But everything that we do that is sin is also foolish. Like, was it a sin for us to buy our three-year-old son a drum set for Christmas this year? No. Was it wise? No, it absolutely was not wise. Sin is both wrong and dumb. Sin is the world's most impressive example of folly. And on the opposite end of folly, we have wisdom. And wisdom is knowing and understanding God's good world and fitting oneself into it. The wise person understands the way that God created things to work. It understands creation's, creation and its boundaries and its limits, its rhythms and its laws. And, it, and the wise person accommodates him or herself to it. A wise person essentially gives themselves over to creation and God because they know that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Wisdom is essentially living with the grain of God's ordered world. Cornelius Plantinga, he writes it this way. He says, in the biblical view, the wise are righteous and the righteous are wise. These are the people who love and fear God, affirm God's world, live gladly within its borders, and make music there according to divine time and key signatures. The wise are always in order. Insofar as they live right, they also live well. The righteous are wise and the wise are righteous. Righteous. And so, careful stewardship of your finances, it's wise, because living within your means will result in having savings for the eventuality when an emergency comes up. And it will come up at some point. But it is also righteous because it frees you from being enslaved to materialism, consumerism, giving in to every one of your immediate desires. Disciplining your children when they are young is wise, because it builds into them habits for a healthy living. Being a part of this world, and ideally it imparts some kind of wisdom for them, for their future. But it is also righteous because it trains children up in godliness. You see, these things are more than just wisdom. They are virtuous. Righteousness and wisdom are connected to each other. And sin, on the other hand, is inherently foolish because it is going against the grain of God's well-ordered creation. Sin flows from having, from from sort of this deception that I don't need to fit myself within the boundaries of how God made shalom to work. And this deception is at the very center of the very first sin that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. At the heart of the human rebellion was the idea that we do not need to fit ourselves within God's definition of flourishing. We don't need his boundaries. We can define for ourselves our own boundaries. And this has been at the heart of sin and foolishness ever since. The Apostle Paul, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, he reflects on this point in Romans chapter 1, that humans have exchanged the truth for a lie. They have exchanged, they've traded wisdom for their own folly. As Plantinga says it, we are committing ourselves to our own jackassery. (laughs) Take that home. You'll not forget that one. In the folly of our sin, we cease to fear God which is a terrifying and tragic snare that happens in Christians all of the times. The idea that we can still somehow love Jesus while indulging in our sin. We've seen it countless times in men and women who are leaders in the church. People you think that this could never happen to, and then they crash and burn in a moral failure, and it leaves just a wreck of devastation all around them. These are men and women who dismiss the, they, they, they dismiss the gradual, unchecked blind spots in their character that grow under the pressure of leadership until it becomes all too evident all at once. It's so common, it's no longer shocking. And I think that it grieves us as the church. And so there's this great story of, uh, about a pastor going and visiting uh, Jim Baker when he was in prison. How many of you know who Jim Baker is? Good, a lot of you guys, great. Um, Jim Baker was a televangelist in the 70s and 80s, and his influence was massive. He hosted a TV show with his wife, Tammy Faye Baker, and uh, they even developed a Christian like amusement park. I I just learned that, pretty incredible. Um, for younger people who may not know of Tammy Faye as the televangelist wife, you may remember that she co-starred with Flava Flav on The Surreal Life back when I was in high school. What a weird world we live in. And so in the late 80s, it was discovered that hush money payments had been uh, made to uh, Jim Baker's church secretary to cover up an alleged rape. And during the investigation, they discovered that widespread fraud had been taking place well beyond what was just in these hush money payments. And Jim Baker ended up going to prison. And so while he was in prison, a pastor named John Bevere went to visit him and asked him some hard questions. And here is an excerpt from the conversation that they had. John Bevere writes, after he had talked for a while, I felt like I wanted to ask him some questions. The first question I asked was, Jim, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? When did you stop loving Jesus? Was it when you committed adultery with Jessica Hahn seven years before you got thrown into prison? Was it the fraud? When did it really happen? because I remember he was so on fire for God in the early years. He looked at me and said, John, I didn't. I said, what do you mean you didn't? He said, I didn't fall out of love with Jesus. I loved him all the way through it. And then he saw the total bewilderment on my face. I said, what do you mean? And he said, John, I loved Jesus, but I didn't fear God. There are millions of Christians in America who love Jesus but don't fear him. And it is the fear of the Lord that perfects holiness in our life. In the Proverbs, it talks about how the fear of God is the very beginning of wisdom. And without the fear of God, there is no wisdom. It is possible to live a life with affection for Jesus in your heart, while also letting sin creep in and gradually destroy you. It is possible to love Jesus and not fear God. This is a horribly destructive self-deception. You see, sin blinds us. It blinds our self-awareness. And slowly we begin to rationalize our own behavior. And we diminish the wrong that we participate in. And we fail to recognize sort of our complicity with systems that oppress others and mar our souls. We deny our intentions. We forget the wrongs that we have committed all the while holding on to the wrongs that have been committed against us. We distance our identity from the sin that we commit by saying things like, yeah, maybe I did that thing, but I'm not a bad person. And what is this but hubris and folly? It is the ultimate expression of the foolishness of sin, to believe that this won't somehow result in my own deformation and eventual destruction. The fear of God is wisdom, but self-deception leads us into sin and destruction. Sin keeps us from recognizing our own character, not seeing our own faults. We become self-deceived. Richard Foster writes it like this. He says, sin is ultimately an attempt to fill our need for God with everything but God. And this is the folly of our sin. It's exchanging the life of joy and peace and love, the shalom of God that we were created for, for something lesser. The folly of our sin is taking a good thing, making it a God thing to our own destruction. Which finally brings us to Mark chapter 10 the famous story of Jesus talking to a rich young man. Look at it with me. Now, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a kid. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. God amen, amen. now this is, a, this is a this is a really tragic story like it had all of the elements to be a beautiful story of a young man finding the better treasure than anything he had ever chased after his whole life and instead it's a tragic demonstration of the folly of possessions and security this man was a fool he was a complete and total fool And that's a hard pill for us to to swallow because on the outside, it seems like he was wise. He was successful. He had money and provisions. He was educated. He was seemingly righteous. Seemed like a great guy. And in the end, he was destroyed by his own folly. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It is deep and regrettable foolishness to gain the whole world and lose your soul. It is foolishness to have everything that you could ever want or desire and to walk away from true life. By every every natural metric, this young man had the good life. Yet the ache in his soul, he wasn't satisfied with what he seemed to have. He knew that there had to be more. There had to be something that could fulfill the longing that he had inside his heart. And so he goes to Jesus to find out what it was. And I think this man missed the heart of Jesus' invitation. He got so hung up on the wrong part. Jesus' invitation wasn't sell all that you have. The real invitation was come and experience true life by following me. I don't believe that Jesus was saying that in order to have a place among his disciples, you had to earn it by renouncing wealth. For many of us, we actually find more and more freedom as we walk with Jesus. It's a process. But Jesus warns from the outset, it will end up costing you everything and that that cost is worth it. That is true wisdom. You see, this man didn't have the faith in Jesus to appreciate what he was walking away from. If he only knew what he was being offered, he would have gladly surrendered everything that he had to be a disciple. But he was blinded to the reality of who Jesus was, and he was bound by his wealth and his possessions. And what we see in this young man is something that is true for all of us. The things that we look to for our salvation— end up becoming the cruel taskmasters that enslave us. We become bound to our would-be saviors. I'm gonna say that one more time. The things that we look to for our salvation end up becoming the cruel taskmasters that enslave us. We become bound to our would-be saviors. You see, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works right? Like sex works until it doesn't, right? Or like getting a little bit drunk at the end of the day, sort of taking the edge off, relaxes you. It kind of works until it doesn't, right? Success, it brings meaning to our lives until it doesn't. Or money, or security, or Instagram likes, like you, you name it sin works to give us just enough of what we're longing for while blinding us to the reality of what is happening in our hearts and this is folly it's foolishness for this young man he couldn't walk away from the allure of wealth and security and then self-deception it be, and bad judgment it spiral into its most tragic form which ends up in addiction and many people in this room have stories of how addic- addiction has impacted your life. Now, addiction is way too complex of a subject to meaningfully speak to this morning. But essentially, it is the way that compulsion gradually forms bondage in our lives. Rarely does someone just step into full-blown addiction. Usually, they dabble until it becomes a little bit compulsive, until it becomes uh, irresistible. And we call it addiction, but Jesus and Paul have a different word for it. They call it slavery." In Second Peter chapter two, we read, "They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them." And so the thought of being in bondage, of being a slave, that is a hard pill for us to swallow in a culture that values freedom the way that we do in 21st century America. And the problem is that in America, we define freedom all wrong very differently from how the biblical authors define it. It is ironic that we can live in a society that is rife with systemic racism, addiction, debt, compulsive consumerism, fraud, obesity, alcoholism, environmental degradation, and still believe that we are free. And this is because we define freedom as simply the ability to do whatever we want with any, without anybody restraining us. And if that's how you define freedom, then all of these outcomes are the only logical end in a society that prizes freedom like that. But the writers of scripture take a, have a very different take on what true freedom is. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Paul wrote these famous words, it is for freedom That Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery now when you read this first verse at first glance it reads like what many in America would say today it's all yeah freedom it's all about my freedom don't let anything or anyone tread on me but if you keep on reading you see that Paul has something else in mind skip down to verse 13 he says you my brothers and sisters We're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. All right, sweet. I'm called to be free. I've been made for free. Yeah, this is something that I'm being invited into. Freedom, awesome. But hold on, like I'm being told I'm free, but I'm also being told what I should and shouldn't do. That doesn't feel like exactly freedom. Keep going. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. For Paul, the opposite of indulging the flesh is actually to serve other people. It seems like in the Bible, the greatest threat to our personal liberty and freedom is not other people, but rather our own flesh, our own self-indulgence, our own selfishness, our own foolishness. In verse 16, Paul writes, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. What a fascinating line of thinking, right? When we're talking about sin, freedom, Paul says, because you are free to do what you want, you must not do whatever you want. If you want to live a life of freedom, you must not indulge yourself in your freedoms. You see, Paul is definitely, he's talking here to a church that is wrestling with its relationship with the law, which is the regulations that are spelled out in the first few books of the Old Testament. And Paul is telling them that in Christ, they have no obligation to perfectly fulfill those laws because it has all been satisfied in the death of Jesus on the cross. But in their freedom from the law, they are at a great risk of bondage to themselves. The more insidious taskmaster is not external rules, but actually internal slavery to sin and and improper desires. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. I mean, sounds like. Honestly, what it felt like to get our kids ready for church this morning. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what were we in bondage to in our flesh? He says sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Tinder apps, the bar scene, hookup culture. Idolatry and witchcraft, essential oils. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) low blow. (laughs) Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. I mean, does that not describe news media and cancel culture and Twitter? Selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. Man, the political landscape all around us. Envy, Instagram, HGTV, Zillow, advertisements drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Porn, HBO, (laughs) Netflix. If our freedom is the liberation to do whatever the hell we want, I said that on purpose, we will only find ourselves in bondage to what we want. But see, that's not Paul's view of freedom. That's not how Jesus defines freedom. That's folly. That's slavery. For them, freedom isn't about personal autonomy, but rather it's about liberating love, or sorry, liberating loving relationships from the power of sin to corrupt them. It's about being free from our own fleshy foolishness. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, a life of true freedom is a life that is full of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a life that pours itself out for others, it's a life that is gentle, gentle and peaceable. It is a life that is self-controlled and wise. And it's the way of the cross. He says, those who belong to Jesus the Messiah have crucified its, their flesh with all of its passions and desires. And so if you want to walk in true freedom, in true wisdom, the invitation is the way of the cross. In a world that increasingly encourages to simply follow our own desires and do what feels best for us, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, Jesus calls us to instead put our desires and our very lives to death in order to live a life that is, that is full of true flourishing with him. He says our fleshly desires are not just morally wrong. They are foolish because they don't lead us to true life. They run against the grain of God's shalom. But true flourishing comes when we learn to live within the limits and boundaries of God's ordered world. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm chapter 16. And right in the middle, David writes this. He says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Which sounds better to you? Determining what's best for yourself and doing whatever you want, as long as you hope that it doesn't hurt anybody or learning to live within the boundaries that God graciously gives us for our own flourishing. When Jesus called that rich young man to come and follow him and to sell everything that he had, notice that Mark points out that as Jesus did this, Jesus was loving him. It was loving of Jesus to put his finger on this man's disordered desires. It was the kindness and grace of Jesus to point out what this man was invisibly and unconsciously in bondage to. And the invitation was, uh, was for this man, young man to experience something that he had yet to attain through natural success. A life of true freedom. And this life was a life that was marked by the cross. Now this sermon, it would be a real disservice for me to just leave it there and say, therefore sin is dumb, stop doing sin. (laughs) It's good advice. But the truth is that when we think about everything that we're about to celebrate in Good Friday and Easter is that we we are celebrating something that is way bigger than Jesus just inviting us to stop sinning and demonstrating a better way That Jesus, when he goes to the cross on that Good Friday and he dies in our place for our sin, he is more than just paying off a debt that we could never pay. The Bible teaches clearly that he is disarming powers and principalities and he is breaking the yoke of slavery that is on each and every one of us. So we no longer are required to live our lives in bondage to our sin. Now that doesn't mean that as soon as the day you, you pray a prayer, you check a card or you rise from the waters of baptism that suddenly sin is no more in your life. No, it's something that we will struggle with till our very dying breath. But Jesus says that it doesn't define you and that his grace will empower us to be able to walk increasingly with him in a life of flourishing. But again, this life of flourishing is not one of success and health and wealth and prosperity. It is rooted in the truth that we will have to take up our cross and follow him. But the very good news is that as we lose our life, what do we find? We gain it. We gain it back again. What good would it be for you to live your whole life chasing after all of the desires only to lose your soul? The invitation this morning from Jesus you can have your soul back. Amen.